coming up in this episode. Parts of the story really lend itself to psychoanalysis in some way, right? You see how he's been brought up and what formed his thinking early on in his life. I cannot, on the printed page, convey the magic, the power, the majesty of that speech. When I say uh, new information, one of the things I'm thinking about is declassified documents. This podcast from Georgia Public Broadcasting highlights books with Georgia connections. Hosted by two of your favorite public radio book nerds who also happen to be your hosts of All Things Considered on GPB Radio. I'm Peter Biello. And I'm Orlando Montoya. Thanks for joining us as we introduce you to authors, their writings, and the insights behind their stories, mixed with our own thoughts and ideas on just what gives these works a narrative edge. All right, Orlando, it's your turn, your book. What have you got to share with us? Well, I'm going to take us to the biography section today. We're going to pull off a biography of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It's called King a Life by Jonathan Ige. And it's kind of lengthy. It's 669 pages, but it goes really fast because it's got a lot of new information uh, about this legend that we've all known about. Okay. What new information? Because, I mean, it feels like we've been told various versions of the story of his life over the decades. Well, you know, just like every generation needs to tell the story of the founders, you think of World War II, how many books come out every decade about that. It's just that our zeitgeist changes. We have not only new information, but a new way of thinking about about the information. And so when I say uh, new information, one of the things I'm thinking about is declassified documents. You may know that uh, you know over the past decade or so, we've declassified a lot of documents about King. And there have been some headlines come up about these declassified documents. Oh, okay. So what was in these documents? Well, one of the headlines that keeps coming up about this book, as in, you know, when, <laughs> when, when the reporters go and they say, what's new about this book? One of the headlines is that LBJ knew about FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover's campaign to undermine King, but did nothing to stop it. And here's Ige talking about that, and here Ige is talking about LBJ. I think he was enjoying the gossip. He enjoyed having power over people. He enjoyed having more information on people, even if they were not necessarily his political rivals, even if they were people that he... um, allied with and worked with, he still liked having information that he might use to control that relationship. And um, he and J. Edgar Hoover were good, close friends, and J. Edgar Hoover was clearly out to get Martin Luther King Jr., and and LBJ, perhaps uh, more than anyone, had a chance to stop that that campaign. Maybe like a lot of people, he he might have been afraid of taking on J. Edgar Hoover, who had a lot of power in his own right. But I also think that LBJ enjoyed it. I think he enjoyed the gossip. He enjoyed having the inside information about Dr. King's personal life. So that's just one of the headlines that's coming out of Ike's new book. That's not super surprising about LBJ. I mean, he was a power broker to the extreme. We kind of knew that. Yeah. We kind of knew that. But there's more information there. Also, just, you know, our, our perceptions of the role of women have changed also. And and I goes into the book about how, you know, a lot of the women in the civil rights movement were asking, you know, King and others, you know, let us have more, let us have more roles, but, um, but did, but they did not. Uh, So there's a lot about that. So that's what I mean by zeitgeist changing. You know, we kind of looking about um, things in a different way. Meaning like previous biographers didn't really pay much attention to the role of women or how yeah, Dr. Martin Luther King uh, yeah, included yeah. them in the in the in the civil rights. Like movement. we all knew about MLK's prolific marital infidelity. Yeah, I mean that's something that we knew about. And uh, is this something that I talks about in detail? He he goes about it in more of 
trying to talk about how Hoover was trying to destroy King. And, you know, we're living in an age where we, we, we like to see our heroes a little bit human, uh, a little bit flawed. I think what I would say, and what he does say, is that by hallowing King, we have hallowed him. Hmm. In other words, by treating him as a god, we have hallowed him in a way. Uh, so that's that's one of the interesting things about the book. Well, you mentioned zeitgeist, and of course, I feel like in the culture right now, the zeitgeist is in favor of flawed heroes. We see them on TV, we see them in movies, people who we're supposed to root for, even if they're not perfect, and that seems like what this book is about, and, and someone we, who is a hero but not perfect. And we find out why they're flawed. And one another new information in this book is about Daddy King. Uh, so MLK's father, King Sr., um, Ig found audio-taped interviews for an unpublished biography that Daddy King was going to write but never did. And so these audio-taped interviews provide a lot of details about uh, King's childhood. Um, King was beaten uh, by his father um, severely, and this led to, well, a lot of problems. I'll have Ig talk about it here. The relationship between Daddy King and, and MLK is a fascinating one. It's clear that they love each other, that they push each other. But Martin Luther King Jr. always has a little bit of fear of his father and really hates confrontation with his father. It's funny to think about the fact that one of our great activists, one of our great protest leaders, is averse to conflict. And not just with his father, with any father figure, with people like Roy Wilkins of the NAACP, King really shudders. He, he he tries at all costs to avoid conflict. And I think that goes back to his difficult relationship with his father. You know, Daddy King um, spanked the kids um, with a belt, sometimes in, in the front yard, the backyard where neighbors could see. And he was very upset when his son began to risk his life in the civil rights movement and wanted him to come home and wanted him to give up the leadership of the Montgomery bus boycott. But Martin Luther King, as hard as it was for him, did stand up to his father in his own way and, of course, you know, forged his own path. I goes really into this relationship with his father. And not only that, we go back to the grandfather. We go back to Stockbridge, Georgia, one generation removed from slavery. So it sounds like what you're saying is that parts of the story really lend itself to psychoanalysis in some way, right? You see how he's been brought up and what formed his thinking early on in his life. Yeah, some people, you, you might call it psychoanalysis. I prefer to call it uh, character development, mm -hmm. backstory. How do we get from there to here? And, and that's another thing that I found very interesting about this book. The way Ig writes it, we don't know what's going to happen. He writes it in a way that kind of leads to some doubt. Is he going to become a minister? Is he going to go to Montgomery? Is he going to go to the Lorraine, Lorraine Motel? We know these things, but when you're writing about someone this well-known, it seems to me very hard to do to kind of um, write it in a way that's so compelling. We, we don't know. Well, we have to talk about the Eye of a Dream speech because we're coming up on the 60th anniversary of that speech, which was on August 28th, 1963. What can you tell us about the speech that we don't already know that you learned in this book? Well, I have two clips for you. One is about the origin of the speech, how it came to be. You know, King, we know, wasn't prepared for it mentally. Um, he wrote it the night before uh, when he arrived at the hotel in Washington, D.C. He stayed up late at night working on it, and uh, I shared some of that. When you read the draft that he submitted, and he turned it into reporters before the speech so they could have a copy of it and they could get make their deadlines, 
it's a fairly political document. It's powerful, but it doesn't soar with the kind of rhetoric that we're used to. It's more of a political speech than a, than a religious one. And, and King's sermons were really usually what he was best known for, of course. Uh, but as he finished the written portion of the text, he decided he wasn't done yet. Uh, he was going to blow past the, the time limit they had set on him, and he was going to extend. And that's when he said, and today I have a dream. And that was Mahalia Jackson who, who cried out from, from behind him. Well, correct? I discovered something a little different. Many people have reported over the years that Mahalia Jackson cried out and inspired him. And then King, hearing Mahalia, decided to go on and to do the I Have a Dream speech, which she had heard him give earlier in Detroit. But that's not true, actually. What happened was that King decided on his own, and I, I obtained a copy of the master uh, recording that Motown made that day, and you could hear every word out of Mahalia's mouth. Um, what actually happened is that King finished his speech, began, I have a dream. And then about the second or third time he said, I have a dream, Mahalia echoed him and said, tell him about the dream, Martin. And over the time, that story has been changed a little bit to give Mahalia credit for inspiring him. But I don't think that's actually what happened. So did you know that bit about Mahalia Jackson? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. So the, 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 the speech was actually in two parts. There's the boring part that he wrote, the boring political part that he wrote in the hotel the night before. And then this part about I have a dream, which he had been working on uh, for some time. And he had worked on that uh, speech in part in Savannah. You know, I'm from Savannah, as I like Gotta to say. Got to make Savannah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a church in Savannah that says, we're the church where uh, King practiced his, or he had an early version of the I Have a Dream speech. It's just, like, just forget about what he said about Detroit. Yeah, well, well <laughs> no, he also, did, he also did it in Detroit as well. But Second African Baptist Church in, in, in Savannah and this church in Detroit where he practiced the speech. And so that's where he goes off script in Washington and says, I have a dream. And the Mahalia comes in. And the Mahalia story I had heard before, uh, through various ministers, uh, usually in the context of speaking extemporaneously and, and just going extemporaneously. So anyways, all of these things are, were, were new to me. And, and you said you had a second clip to play us about yeah, that? Yeah, uh, something else about the, uh, the, the speech that I want to highlight is just how I wrote about it. You know, So this podcast, we're all about the content itself, but also the writerly aspect of it. How are you going to write about a speech that everybody knows? <laughs> We've already done so much research about this speech. And so um, I, what I chose to do was sort of take us away from the speech to talk about the speech. Well, there's a tr problem with the storytelling that I encountered. How am I going to write about the I Have a Dream speech in a way that feels as powerful as the dream it's speech itself? I can't. I cannot, on the printed page, convey the magic, the power, the majesty of that speech. So I had to do something different. I had to think about being creative. And I decided to take the lens off of Dr. King and show how that speech echoed with the people in the crowd. So I wove in three stories, really, the story of Dr. King and the words and the speech he's giving, along with the story of a teenage girl from Chicago, Francine Washington, who just at the last minute got on a train with a bottle of Coke and a change of underwear in her backpack and decided that she was going to come there because she was inspired by what she saw King doing. She was a black girl, and she wanted to believe that King could actually change her life. The other third person I wove in is the white bodyguard who's standing next to King as he gives a speech. If you look in the photos, you'll see there's this tall guy in a park ranger hat. His name is Gunny Gundrum. 
And I thought, who's that guy? Why is he in every photo of King giving his speech? And at one point, if you watch the video, Gunny reaches in and adjusts the microphone in the middle of the speech. Who has got the nerve to stick his arm in front of Dr. King when he's giving the greatest speech of his life? But Gunny did. So I tracked him down, too, and talked about what it was like for a white man who had never met a black person until he went into the army. What was it like for him? How did that speech change his life? So I wove those three stories into the chapter. So isn't that an innovative way of talking about a speech that we all know? Absolutely. That's amazing. Um, So there's all these different ways that he writes that I wanted to call up as well. So I wonder if you get the sense that Ig knows he's writing a generational book. How does Ig see his own work here? I think that Ig thinks definitely sees his work as definitive. I mean, it it, it is the first major biography of King in decades. Uh, we have to go back to the 1980s. I think there was a few in the early uh, 2000s as well. Uh, but this is the book about King for our time. So it's definitely a definitive book. He has written previous definitive books of Lou Gehrig, uh, Jackie Robinson, Al Capone, Muhammad Ali. And this is also, I believe, going to be the last major biography featuring the words of living witnesses, people who knew him. Mm-hmm. I mean, you and I reported a few months ago about the uh, death of Christine King Ferris, King's older sister, in June, and then Harry Balafonte. Uh, died in May. So in the end, that's why Ig says he wanted to write this book. When I was interviewing people for my Muhammad Ali book, people like Dick Gregory and Harry Belafonte and Jesse Jackson, it occurred to me that they knew Dr. King as well. And I asked them about how the two men got along. What did Ali think of Dr. King? What did Dr. King think of Ali? And then I just began asking them questions really out of curiosity. What was Dr. King like? What was it like to be around him? And That was when I realized that there was this great opportunity to interview people who knew him and that the window was closing. So I just felt like history needs to take advantage of the fact that we still have these living witnesses. So there's another thing that gives this book the narrative edge. I feel like those are the reasons I want to pick up this book, right? I'm always fascinated by him, of course, as a historical figure, but hearing about what it's like to be around him, I mean, I feel like I haven't encountered that in a book yet. That's yeah, fascinating. Get it from somebody who was there with him, you right? Know? And instead of, you know, f- you know, f- figures that have passed on, we we're not going to have that first person account anymore. So, living witnesses, new information, a forward moving uh, text um, of one of the greatest Americans who ever lived, the greatest Georgians. That's some of the reasons why I give this book the narrative edge. Fantastic. Well, Orlando, thanks so much for sharing this information about King, life, Jonathan Ike. All right. And you'll have something for me next time. I'm coming right up. Thanks for listening to Narrative Edge. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. This podcast is a production of Georgia Public Broadcasting. Find us online at gpb.org slash narrative edge. You also can catch us on the daily GPB news podcast, Georgia Today, for a concise update on the latest news in Georgia. For more on that and for all of our podcasts, go to gpb.org slash podcasts.